Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. It's one of the many mysteries of Scripture because when you understand that prophecy, biblically, is just history in advance, she's not saying he will and he will and he will, though it's all yet future. I mean, he hasn't even been born. How is it that he already has? Because she knows the fact that the Messiah is about to be born is the guarantee that all the promises of what Messiah would do would be fulfilled. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Son of God. We're taking up where we left off yesterday with Pastor Sam discussing the significance of Jesus' title, The Son of God, after which we will look at Mary's response to the news that she will bear the Messiah. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 135 and let's listen in. When they said he's like a prophet, well, well, here's why they thought that. In that day, Few, if any, ever took any personal responsibility for the things they taught and did. And when Jesus spoke, they took note of this. He spoke with authority. And that reminded them of, well, what it was like in the Old Testament. Remember, 400 years of silence. They hadn't met any prophets like that, but they'd read about prophets like that. So when, when Jesus comes on the scene... Well, John the Baptist actually, you know, the closest to an Old Testament prophet. In fact, I think it was Chuck Missler that pointed out that the Old Testament actually ends with John the Baptist because it says the law and the prophets were unto John. And now, of course, we go from John to Jesus. So when they said, well, he's a prophet, it's because he spoke with authority. But unlike the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. That is what separated them from the common folk, you see. They didn't come saying, I think there might be somebody up there. Or I was talking to the man upstairs and, you know, I'd kind of like to let you know. No, they were very direct. Thus says the Lord and oftentimes followed by one word, repent. That was the common message of the prophets. That's why John fits so neatly into that group. But here's the deal. Jesus never actually said Thus says the Lord, did he? If you trace through it, and don't take my word for it, it's a great exercise. Start in Matthew and read all the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and find where Jesus says, thus says the Lord. He never says it, and here's why. He was the Lord. He never had to say, thus says the Lord. He says, you have heard it has been said, but I say unto you. He spoke with an authority that said, hey, this is how it really is. And this is what's really going to happen. And, and here's what you better do about it. So all of these ideas about Jesus, they were happening in that day, floating. They're happening in our day, doing the same. And then he says, well, who do you say I am? And, and Peter, speaking for the group, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, don't miss it. The Son of God and the Son of the living God, the true and living God. Well, that separates Jesus from anyone and everyone before. In fact, this title, the Son of God, while not always used only of Jesus, and I'll give you a couple instances where it's used otherwise, it does appear again and again in Scripture. And, and it's important, 47 times the Son of God appears. One time in the Old Testament, that's in Daniel. 
eight times in Matthew, three times in Mark, 10 times in John, six times in Luke. First time in Luke where the Son of God appears is here in Luke 1.35. The angel tells Mary, your son will be born miraculously and he will be the Son of God. We also know that Adam, and I made mention of him, he was called the Son of God because he was created directly by the hands of God. You know the story. He took the dirt and he formed him. He blew the breath of life into him and he became a living being. So Adam was called the Son of God. But, but after that, well, we are descendants of and born in the image of Adam and, and we bear his sin nature. We already touched on it. When you get to the genealogy, uh, and that's in uh, Luke 3.38, that's exactly what it says. He's the son of Enosh, the Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Twice the devil himself calls Jesus the son of God. And, and some of us, because, well, probably most of us, because we're not that familiar with the Greek language, we need tools to really dig into it. You might not be sensitive to the fact that when the devil comes to Jesus and tempts him, he says, if you are the son of God, well, Command these stones to become bread. Or if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here and even quote scripture promising that the father would rescue him and take care of him. But, but here's the interesting thing. When he says, if you are the son of God, the construction of that word if in the Greek is actually if and it's true. In other words, I can say if and, and it can mean, well, maybe. Or I can say if and it can mean for sure. And usually if we're going to say if and it's for sure, well, we would call it sense and it would do no violence to the passage to, to actually read it that way. Since you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. Why didn't they put sense? Because because it is if, but it's if and it is true. In other words, Satan wasn't questioning if Jesus was the son of God. He knew Jesus was the son of God. How did he know? Colossians tells us all things were made by and for Jesus. I think last time I mentioned this, I got a call or a note or two by people who were just a little confused about, well, wait a minute, you're saying Jesus made Satan and he was made to serve Jesus? Yeah, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. All things were made by him and for him. That would include Satan. He's in a part of the all things, both the physical and the, and the spiritual, the natural and the supernatural. And so Satan recognizes Jesus. He knows who he is. And so he's not saying, oh, I'm not really sure. He's saying, hey, I know who you are, so why don't you do this? And Jesus just says, not going to happen. It is written. And then later, the, the demons, as he's casting demons out of these people, they... And this is in uh, Luke 4.41. And by the way, all of these are in the passages we'll study in the weeks and months to come. The demons uh, came out of many crying and saying, you are the Christ, the son of God. Now get this. This is long before the disciples have really processed this and put it all together. But, but he rebuking them did not allow them to speak for they knew he was the Christ. So the demons not only understand that he's the son of God, they understand he's the savior of the world. Wow. It really changes the dynamic when you see that, that in the spiritual world, everybody knows who Jesus is. In the physical world, well, there are a lot of doubts and lots of confusion. Well, there's one more place in Luke. It's in Luke 22:70, where Jesus responds to the, the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel's question, when they said, are you then the son of God? 
So he said to them, you rightly say, I am. This leads to something that we get out of Matthew's gospel, and that is, well, it's the high priest who's putting him under oath. And in other words, they've been accusing him and they bring false witnesses in and, and they can't even get them to agree. So finally, he, he lays the trap. And uh, I, I, I was reminded of it the other day when, when uh, you know, not that I was watching the, the Miss America pageant. I, I saw it on the news. But uh, when, when that gal was asked the question, and it was a loaded question. I mean, it was clear how she was going to answer. And, and, uh, but the point is, it, there is a bit of a parallel, much more serious in Jesus' situation, of course. But, but it's like someone asks a question knowing that's going to put the person on the spot. And if they give an honest answer, there's going to be trouble. That's exactly what the high priest does to Jesus. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the son of God. And what's Jesus going to say? Hmm, it is as you say. And then they begin to, well, tear their clothes, even the high priest, and, and, and just say, he's committed blasphemy. What do you say? And they say, he's deserving of death. Now, here's the interesting thing. Today, there are people saying, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's not what they thought. When Jesus said, the Father and I are one, they call that blasphemy. When Jesus says he's the Son of God, they understood to be called the Son of God, made himself equal with God. Blasphemy was punishable under Mosaic law by stoning, by death. The penalty for blasphemy was death. So he says, well, what do you say? And they say he's worthy of death. That's what they were looking for. You see, they knew he'd tell the truth. And so they put him under oath. He told the truth. And now they condemn him to death. Now, here's the irony. Just like Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, what does he say? He says, hey, if God is God, worship him. And if Baal's God, worship him. Well, in the same way, if Jesus is God, worship him. And if not, well, then worship whatever you're worshiping. But, but here's the deal. Jesus is God the Son, and Jesus is the Son of God. And I already mentioned in the introduction, he wasn't killed for what he taught or, or, or what he did. He was put to death for who he claimed to be. If he were not the Son of God, the charge of blasphemy would have been true. Since he is the Son of God, well, they should have worshipped him. And that's true for all of us and for all the people we share with and witness to. Well, at this point, Mary arose, we read in verse 39, and, and in those days went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Filled with the Spirit or the Spirit upon a person. You need to know when that happens, it always happens for the same reason, though the outcome or the effect can vary. But Jesus had been very clear about this in Acts 1.8. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So if the disciples trained by Jesus and then sent out personally by him needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish their, mis their mission and ministry, well, how much more we? Well, of course, we need the same power that they needed because that's the power that makes it happen. 
in order to be a right witness, whether we're talking about living for Christ or sharing Christ or laying down our life for Christ, we need to be empowered by the Spirit of God. And as Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, she spoke with a loud voice, verse 42, saying, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord, and I have those words underlined. Hey, she knows what's going on here. The mother of my Lord should come to me, for indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. She begins to prop prophesy it. And that's exactly what, what she's doing. She is declaring the wonderful works of God. And that's basically what happens. I mean, God may do other things, but that is the primary purpose of the filling of the Spirit. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she declares that Mary and the child within her are both blessed. She does say Mary is blessed among women, not above women. And she's blessed because she believed the prophecy, because she submitted herself to the Lord. And the ultimate proof, hey, the virgin birth, the Son of God. And well, here are two things we want to avoid, two extremes we want to avoid as we look at the person and the miracle related to Mary. First of all, we want to avoid any mythology that surrounds her. And you need to know it wasn't all that early on. It was a few hundred years into it when they began to, well, those who got into all this, but to begin to teach things about Mary that just weren't in the scripture. Somewhere along the line, someone came up with the idea, okay, Jesus is miraculously conceived. He has a mother and then he has God as father. You know, the father God as father. And, and so, well, that's an immaculate conception. That's a miraculous conception. And so somebody started thinking and they thought, but wait a minute, if Mary was sinful, how could she give birth to a sinless child? So she must have been miraculously conceived. She must herself have had an immaculate conception. Now, the Bible never says anything like that. So that should settle it once and for all. But even if that wasn't all, all the way we were going to deal with it, check this out. Logic itself says that's not going to work out because then if we go back to her parents, wouldn't they have to be immaculately conceived and miraculously conceived too? You're going to have to keep going back and back and back. And, and so the, the deal is somebody along the line just made this up because they couldn't really put together how a, a, a holy son could be born of, of a sinful mother. Now, remember, we're talking about a very godly woman. But as we'll see in a moment, the testimony of her own lips. Mary knew that she was a sinner. So, so this idea that she... Mary was conceived miraculously. It's just mythology. There are those who say she was a virgin perpetually, and, and that's a, a little bit, you know, less of an issue, although the scripture's pretty clear that, that Jesus did have brothers and sisters. Of course, they were born of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. But if people want to say, well, I don't believe that, that's okay. It's not going to be that big a deal. But I want to tell you where this all leads, because what happens is when you start an error, over time, it gets stranger and stranger and weirder and weirder. And so if you go to Mexico, I'm not saying Tijuana or Rosarita or Ensenada, although it's dangerous to go anywhere right now, apparently. But, but uh, you go down that far in Mexico, well, well, you're probably not going to see this. But if you go deep into Mexico, there are churches with crosses that on one side they have Jesus and on the other side they have Mary. Now, I'm thinking, 
where in the world would anyone come up with an idea that Mary belongs on the cross? What is that saying? That Jesus and Mary died for our sins? The scripture's so clear on this one. I mean, I don't need to clear it up, do I? Jesus hung on that cross. Jesus died for our sins. Mary was at the foot of the cross looking on. Woman, behold your mother. Or, no, that wouldn't be right, would it? Woman, behold your son. Sometimes I have to think it through. As Jesus entrusts Mary to John, and John, behold your mother. No, she's at the foot of the cross. We know that. So how bizarre to put her on the cross. And it's even weirder than that. When we were in Rome at the Vatican, there are so many things strange about the Vatican. Don't have time to even start. But, but I'm not trying to pick on, on one group. I'm, I'm just saying any mythology that's added to the scripture is a problem, a serious problem. But when we were in the Vatican, not only they have all kinds of weird idols and, and icons and I mean things that you know you're never going to run into when you, you go to any church. I mean it's like you just don't expect it and here you go to the Vatican and you go to this glorious huge beautiful thing with all these amazing paintings and, and there's a painting of, of Father, Son and Holy Mary enthroned in heaven and I'm thinking wait a minute I'm pretty sure it's Father, Son and Holy Spirit enthroned in heaven. Now again all of that mythology developed over time, but it began with a simple error, a question. How could a holy God be born of a sinful woman? So she couldn't have been sinful. And as soon as they decided, well, we're going we're gonna to figure out a way, then they were off to all sorts of foolishness and craziness. Well, listen, the other error, and it's the one we probably need to be more concerned about, would be failing to give her the honor and respect due her. I mean, she was chosen by God. And God did, you know, plant his son Jesus in her. She did give birth to him. She did raise him and provide for him and protect him and, and care for him. Once more, she bore the accusations and the insinuations of the community of people that wouldn't have believed that this whole thing was miraculous. And so we want to give her the honor due her. The scripture says, give to all what's due, the honor to those who are due it. And, and, and so we, we, don't want to, we don't want to glorify her. We don't want to deify her, but, but we do want to honor and respect her. Well, in any case, she goes on, Martha, to confirm these prophecies concerning both Mary and the Christ. And then check this out. Mary begins to praise the Lord. And her response to all of this begins in verse 56 and goes down, or excuse me, verse 46 and goes down to verse 56. Mary says, first of all, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, I don't really want to take the whole song apart, but there are some things she has to say that deal specifically and doctrinally and for our purposes, because it's a Bible study, we need to touch on them. So when she responds, note this, Jesus' disciples at one point say, teach us to pray. They never ask, teach us to praise. Why? Because praise just comes naturally. I mean, it is both a natural and supernatural response to something happening in our lives and this radical miracle happening in her life and then the, the, the confirmation from Elizabeth and the joy of that encounter, she just starts to give God all the glory. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in, and here are those words, God, my Savior. Why would she even say God, my Savior? 
unless she understood what many are trying to deny. You know, Mary confesses what others are unwilling to confess, that not only is she a sinner, but that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in spite of the fact that she's a godly woman, that she's a virtuous woman, that she's a chosen woman, She's still a sinner in need of a savior. And she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant and before henceforth, behold, excuse me, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. She understood, hey, it's the meek, the humble, the poor in spirit that are going to receive the blessings of the Lord. And then he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. She celebrates in song his might, his holiness, his mercy. And as you worship with us week after week and month after month, as we consider the lyrics of the songs, they are either right out of scripture or they are directly a response to the scripture. We celebrate these same things. God's mighty power, his holiness, his mercy toward us. And then in these last few verses, he has shown strength with his arm, has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Take note of this. As she magnifies the, the mercy of God and the power of God and the faithfulness of God, she uses these words again and again. He has, speaking as if all that was going to happen had already happened. And it's, it's one of the many mysteries of Scripture because when you understand that prophecy, biblically, is just history in advance, she's not saying he will and he will and he will, though it's all yet future. I mean, he hasn't even been born. How is it that he already has? Because she knows the fact that the Messiah is about to be born is the guarantee that all the promises of what Messiah would do would be fulfilled. Now, Mary, just like the disciples, expected Jesus to do it all first time around. It's doubtful that they really were putting it together that there would be a first and a second coming. We, we know that because even those disciples on the Emmaus Road, they're later, hey, we had thought he was and we had, but then this happened. And, 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 and he's like, hey, Ought not the Christ to have suffered and, and, and fulfilled all of the prophecies related to the Christ? No, here's the reality. Jesus came the first time to do exactly what Matthew 1, 21 says, to save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Whoever believes in him. To these he gives power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Jesus came the first time to deal with life's greatest issue, yours and mine. Born in sin, sinners by nature and by act, we need a Savior. And her spirit magnified, rejoiced in God, her Savior. My question is, well, can you do that same thing today? Do you know that Jesus came and lived and suffered and died, was buried and rose again, ascended into heaven and is coming again? 
That Jesus died for your sins, according to the scripture, was buried and rose again the third day. Well, here's the deal. Two questions. Who do you say Jesus is? Because what you believe about him will ultimately determine your destiny, your destination, your eternity. And, and, and hey, if you believe he's the Christ, the son of the living God, worship him. Pastor Sam talked a bit today about the worship of Mary. Now, some people have gone as far as calling her in the co-redemptrix. Now, I only say this to bring light to something that you should probably know. That our enemy will do anything he can to keep you from placing your faith in Christ. Don't be surprised by this and don't allow it to cause any confusion for you. And don't allow it, as Pastor Sam noted, to take any respect away from Mary. However, do this. Remember what Jesus said to his apostle Thomas in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you can remember this, you'll know that any attempt to say that there is salvation in anyone or anything outside of Christ is simply a lie. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.